Well, today we begin the third and final chapter of Jesus' Magnificent Sermon. In the first two chapters, which has taken us some four or five months to get through, <laughs> Jesus has told us what human life looks like when the kingdom of God does its work in us, when God transforms our character and our identity and our relationships and our practices and our priorities. And now in the kind of final chapter of Jesus' sermon, he ends by asking us four crucial questions. And I'm calling these questions as kind of a bundle or package, Jesus's kingdom reality check. Each question is like a reality check for us. The first question, how are you relating to others? The second question, how are you relating to the Father? Third question, are you really entering the kingdom? Fourth question, whose voice is actually guiding your life? Jesus' kingdom reality check in these four weeks. And given everything that's going on in our nation and our communities, it's a good time for a reality check. And so we begin this morning with Jesus' first question, how are you relating to others? And what a timely question it is. One of the things that strikes me about Jesus so often is that his words are profoundly simple, and yet they are deeply searching. Jesus is not trying to be esoteric or abstract or, or super complex here. He's just trying to cut to the heart of human relational dynamics. He says, do not judge. For the way you judge others, you will be judged. Take the plank out of your own eye before considering the speck of dust in another person's. When you think about how to treat other people, just consider the way you would like them to treat you and offer that to them. And if you hurt and sin against one another, which you definitely will, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, then just go directly to the other person and talk about it. See, these are really hard things to live out, things that we can only live out by the power and gifting of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus' words are profoundly simple in essence. So this morning, I want to answer this question, how are you relating to others that Jesus poses to us by looking at three things. First, um, Jesus' warning against judging. Second, Jesus' recommendation of the golden rule, as it's often called. And third, the way in which Jesus offers procedures for resolving when there are grievances against people within the community of faith. So first, a, a warning against judging. Jesus says this, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Notice the divine passive, you will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, here's that divine passive again, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, once again, a divine passive, it will be measured to you. Jesus here seems to have the community of faith in particular in mind because he goes on to talk about brothers and sisters. So he's talking about disciple on disciple relationships here. But it's important to be clear from the outset that Jesus is not suggesting that we make some sort of tacit social agreement between each other that will just look the other way. If you don't judge me, I won't judge you. We'll just play it cool. See, Jesus is not here, I don't think he is here, calling us to simply turn a blind eye to the sins of our brothers and sisters or to the injustices of the world. Nor do I think Jesus is calling us to su suspend our capacity for moral discernment or moral judgment or moral conviction. The ability to distinguish between good and evil all throughout the Bible 
and to be able to pursue earnestly what is good is essential to living a healthy and godly life. So the question that comes to me, what is Jesus actually warning against? And I think what he's putting his finger on is our tendency, and it's a consistent one for us, to assume that we have the wisdom and the competence and the authority to judge people the way that God does. The way that God does. And I think this manifests itself in our lives in the way that we often assume the worst intention behind someone's action, or we assume a malicious motivation behind someone's words. I think we can discern this manifesting itself in the way that we will judge others more harshly than the way we judge ourselves and be more uncharitable towards the mistake of others than we would towards our own mistakes. I like the way that Presbyterian preacher Dale Bruner put it. He said, we are not to make final judgments about anyone, says Jesus. To speak assuredly of people's real character if we, as if we saw the inner workings of their heart. To pretend that we know God's verdict on other people's lives at the final judgment, end quote. See, I think Jesus is kind of just pressing against this thing that humans are simply not qualified to enact the sort of judgment that only God can on other human beings. And so Jesus continues on in verses three and four. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's or sister's eye and pay no attention to the plank that's in your own eye? How can you say, says Jesus to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is this plank in your own eye? Once again, Jesus is saying we have this tendency to exaggerate the faults of others all the while minimizing our own. All too often, Jesus says, we judge others while being horribly out of touch with the realities of our own lives. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's comments that he says, when you're annoyed because of somebody else's pride, maybe it's just a, simply a reflection of your own. Or I think of uh, Elizabeth in Jane Austen's uh, no novel, Pride and Prejudice. She says, I could easily forgive his pride if he had not mortified mine. See, personally, I found uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Henri Nouwen very helpful in understanding this why question of Jesus. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye and not see the plank in your own? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's so perceptive of the inner workings of the human heart. He, he said that, that often the reason why we do this, why we judge others in this way, is that we are actually less concerned with helping them and more concerned with kind of self-defense and self-justification. Are my words towards another really about helping them or are they about defending myself? In other words, Dietrich Bonhoeffer asks. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, he says, Jesus addresses the way in which we try to find our identity in comparing ourselves with others. And therefore, to see ourselves in, as supreme over others, as better than others, we have to condemn them and judge them in a way that we don't ourselves. And then he makes this observation, Bonhoeffer. He says, it seems that self-justification and judging others necessarily go together. Just as justification by God's grace and serving others necessarily go together. 
there's so much wisdom here. I could go on about Bonhoeffer for a while here, but in his book, Life Together, he then goes on to say that the authority to speak into another person's life, which I think in, in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus is saying we actually have to a certain extent. But Bonhoeffer says that authority to speak into another person's life has to come first from learning the ministry of holding our tongue, the ministry of meekness, the ministry of listening to our brothers and sisters, the ministry of helping them, and then the ministry of learning to bear their burdens. Bonhoeffer says only if we're willing to hold our tongue and listen and, and bear their burdens are we then prepared to speak into their lives in redemptive ways. And when talking about the ministry of meekness in particular, Bonhoeffer says this, and when I first read this, this just floored me. <laughs> Bonhoeffer says, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness. How can I possibly serve another person in humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? Now, some of us might feel that's quite extreme. But I mean, just think about the Apostle Paul, the progression of his, his hum humility and his maturity in Christ in his own life. I mean, you get the Apostle Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, I am the least of all the apostles. And then you get him in the book of Ephesians saying, I am the least of all the saints. And then you get him in the, the book of uh, 1 Timothy saying, I am the worst of all sinners. So even in, in Paul's spiritual maturation in Christ-likeness, you see this increasingly hu increasing humility from understanding himself as like the, the least of the apostles to the, the least of the saints, to the worst of all sinners. Bonhoeffer says, how can I possibly serve another person in humility if I seriously regard their sinfulness as worse than my own? And Henri Nouwen picks up on this important point as well in his book, Creative Ministry. If you haven't read it, it's a lovely read. It's a searching read. And he names it more simply as the danger of pride. And he talks about this danger in a chapter that he writes on the Christian as an agent of social change. Nouwen is convinced that Christians ought to be working for social reform in like all sorts of ways in all sectors of society. Yet he wants to help us see certain temptations that can accompany such a noble calling from God. And he writes this, I'm gonna quote him at length, page 80. He says, all those who want to change society are often in danger of putting themselves above that society and of being more conscious, conscious of the weakness of others than of the weakness in their own souls. He continues, reformers who are convinced that things have to be different and they often should are out to convert the world, but are they tempted at the same time to think that they, they themselves do not need conversion? Instead of seeing themselves as fully members of that same society which needs reform, they may approach it with the fantasy of being untouchable redeemers who themselves are always right and just. And then Nouwen goes on to give a myriad of examples, just a few. He says these reformers might rightly see the cruel segregation between races in society. 
but then be blind to the fact that what they see happening dramatically on the world scene is also happening in themselves when they condemn certain people as being stupid, others as being narrow-minded, and still others as being conceited. He says, they might be very critical of capitalism and the waste of money and the unequal, unequal distribution of wealth, but, be, but not be able to see that their own style of life would be impossible without the capitalistic society that they condemn. And then he goes on, they might feel that many people should have a better life and many people should have greater respect for their humanity, but at the same time be unable to listen to people, accept their criticism and believe that they can actually learn from them. And so in summary, Nowen says, they might be afraid to be alone and face the fact that they themselves, here's the key line, they themselves are in just as much need of change as is the world they want to convert. Now I read Nowen as in no way downplaying the need for social reformers as he calls them. Rather, I think he's trying to highlight for us the universality of Jesus' fundamental call to conversion. That everybody has a plank or a speck of dust in their eye and it needs to be taken out. And that applies to male and female, to Jew and Gentile, to rich and poor, to Democrat and Republican, to oppressor and oppressed alike. You hypocrite, says Jesus. First take out the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother or sister's eye. Notice Jesus does not say, leave your brother or sister alone. Don't worry about them. Rather, he says, deal honestly with your sin first. Then you'll be better prepared to help your brother or sister. In other words, to use the words of now, and only wounded healers really bring healing. So that's what Jesus is really getting at as he says, judge not. Not just don't make moral, have moral discernment, not just leave your brother or sister alone, but consider your own sin first before going to your brother or sister. But then Jesus puts it positively in verse 12, the so-called golden rule. It's profoundly simple, yet it's, it's a serious principle for all relationships. Jesus says, in everything, do to others, verse 12, what you would have them do to you. For this sums up all the law and the prophets. Now think of the law, the Old Testament law reading that we had in Exodus 22 today. Uh, think of, of what we were told. Do not mistreat or oppress the foreigner, says God. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Do not lend to the needy like it's a business deal that's going to advantage you. In each case, and hundreds of others throughout the Law and the Prophet, we see Jesus with this fundamental kind of care and heartbeat for those who are mistreated, those who are oppressed, those who are kind of refugees, those who are widows or fatherless, and those who are needy and dependent on others. And Jesus says to us, the fundamental principle that undergirds how we should relate to every person in our lives, no matter who they are, is this principle of do to others what you would like them to do to you, if you were in their situation. I find it really interesting that in the Gospel of Luke, this kind of so-called golden rule is placed straight in the middle of Jesus' command to love your enemies. 
It's as if Jesus is trying to say in the Gospel of Luke, I mean this about literally everybody, even your enemies. Jesus is saying, do not treat your enemies based on how they are treating you or how you want to treat them, but based on how you wish they would treat you. In one sense, I think it's a profoundly simple principle, even though it's incredibly hard to live out. <laughs> Just place yourself in someone else's shoes, Jesus says. Consider what it would like, be like for yourself in their situation, in their circumstances in their struggle. And then consider how you would want to be cared for if you were them. In other words, I think Jesus is calling his followers here to a spirit-led act of imaginative empathy. And I wonder if in a season of so much hostility and br brutality and inhumanity and self-defensiveness and self-justification, if this is precisely what the world needs to some extent followers of Jesus, to have an imaginative capacity for empathy, to be filled with the indwelling and gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of discernment and patience and courage and care, to be able to see where what people are actually feeling underneath their words and actions, to imagine what it would like be like to actually feel and experience those things the way they do, and then to consider how it is that if you were them, you would want to be treated by other people, even if they dramatically differ from you. See, I often wonder if like many of the things that people are saying in this season and many of the things that people are doing in this season right now are not only because hatred has and divisiveness has infected their hearts, although I think that's true in a lot of our cases, but also because people feel alone and scared and isolated and unsafe and insecure and misunderstood. People are anxious about the way the world is right now and they don't know where they feel at home or where they belong and, they, and some people are just trying to figure out how to make ends meet. See, it may very well be that in our season we need words of challenge and prophetic truthfulness, I agree. But it may also be that we need words of hope and encouragement and welcome and assurance. It may be, and I think this is true, that we need our ideologies to be challenged and chastened, but it may also be that we simply need someone who hears our cries, who sees our tears, who discerns our pain. It seems to me that Jesus in the golden rule is simply asking us to inject a bit of humanity back into our relationships and public discourse. Will the church be a people of truthfulness and imaginative empathy? Or will we simply choose one over the other? And so Jesus says, warns us against judging other people. And then he encourages us into this imaginative act of empathy. Consider how you would want to be treated and offer that to people. And then third and finally, he gives us procedures for resolving grievances or hurts against one another within the community of faith. It seems that Jesus assumes that the church is not perfect. <laughs> and then this side of heaven, it's not going to be. There will be tensions. There will be divisions. There will be pain. And so Jesus remains a realist. He knows that there's going to be times when our words wound each other and when our silence wounds even deeper. He knows that there will be times when our actions offend each other and when our inaction offends even deeper. 
And so Jesus says to this to us in chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Notice, don't turn a blind eye, don't walk away, don't publicly condemn, don't speak disparagingly behind their backs. No, Jesus says, just simply go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony or two or three witnesses. And then third, if they still refuse to listen to you and the witnesses, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to even the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You see, this, this, according to Jesus, is how his apprentices are encouraged to bear the burden of each other's sins. I think the first step is so key. They meet face-to-face, one-on-one, to speak openly, to listen intently, to converse charitably, and whenever and wherever possible to act generously and to extend forgiveness. They know that they have no direct direct access to one another except through the mediation of Jesus Christ who bears the marks for all people's sins. So my brothers and sisters, I want to end with a lovely little prayer from Peter Haas called Seize My Resistance. I wonder if we can take a brief moment of silence before I read this short little prayer just to consider what it is that that God may be speaking to your heart and mind about maybe judging others or how he would want you to treat others or maybe areas of hurt or sin where you feel like there's maybe God's inviting you to be reconciled to a brother or sister and you need to consider what steps to take. Let's just take a moment of silence to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in those places. And then I'll conclude with a prayer. Beloved Trinity, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the rhythms of rest and work. Today, I request the vision to observe in myself what I so dislike in others. Give me the grace of transformation so that I seize my resistance to love in the form of judgment and dislike of others. Amen. My brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.